Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 5, Episode 11. Last week, I covered both the mountain and city named Hebron. I also went over what is known about Eshkol and Hashbin, both of these places found in the Book of Numbers. This week, I'm switching gears again, covering two items that went along with the sacrifice of the red heifer, namely cedarwood and hyssop. And with that, let's get started. The next couple of topics I'm covering are from Numbers chapter 19, and relate to the ceremony of the red heifer. When the cow is sacrificed, the priest includes a few other things. From the text, Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight, its skin, its flesh, and its blood, with its dung, shall be burned. The priest shall take cedarwood, hyssop, and crimson material, and throw them into the fire in which the heifer is burning. In this passage, there are three other things that are burned, cedarwood, hyssop, and crimson material. I can't really cover crimson material, as the item specified is far too ambiguous, but the other two warrant as deep of a dive as necessary. The first is cedar wood, which of course is just wood from a cedar tree. No need to cover the wood part, but cedars are interesting enough. These coniferous evergreens are found throughout the northern hemisphere, both in North America along with Europe and Asia. Now for the surprising part. At least it was surprising to me. True cedars are not native to North America. If you live on this continent, what you think of as a cedar is likely really a juniper. The only true cedars here, meaning in the U.S. and Canada, have been imported. Honestly, before researching this episode, I didn't even know that. And I was brought up knowing my trees. Conifers from oaks, from maples, from nut bearers. Seriously. And even with this, I never knew. Which gets me to what's generally referred to as true cedars. These trees are native to the mountains as far east as the western Himalayas and stretching to the west, eventually to the Mediterranean region. They tend to be found above sea level. Altitudes as low as about 3,000 feet 1,000 meters in the Mediterranean area to as high as about 10,000 feet, 3,200 meters in the Himalayas. Obviously, the ones I'm concentrating on in this episode are those in the Mediterranean region. Towards the end of this part, and consider this a teaser, I'll cover those known as the Cedars of God, found in the modern country of Lebanon, so north of where the Israelites eventually settled. Circling back to the Old Testament, while we're told that Noah's Ark was made from gopher wood, some consider this to be cedar. In Rome, at the Papal Archbasilica of St. John in Lantern, there is a cedar table said to have been used by Christ at the Last Supper. By some counts, the tree itself is mentioned over 100 times in the Bible, all in the Old Testament including as structural components in King Solomon's palace, and of course, in the temple. But most of the mentions are metaphorical, standing in when a reference was needed to something tall or strong. And even the giant Amorites, making an appearance in the third straight episode, 
were compared to the mighty tree. These trees can grow as tall as about 200 feet or 60 meters, though this is an exceptional height. More typical is between 100 and 130 feet or 30 to 40 meters, but their height probably isn't why they're mentioned in the Old Testament. That likely stems from two other qualities. The wood is especially durable, and its aroma is considered to be somewhere between sweet and spicy. It even repels moths, hence why it's frequently used in closets. Well, it repels some moths. There are other moths that particularly enjoy snacking on the young trees. And all of these uses aren't anywhere close to modern, as it's mentioned in the Iliad, an epic poem thought to have been written by Homer in the 5th century BC. In the poem, Priam fetches treasures from a cedar-roofed or lined storage chamber. It's also frequently used for shoe trees, since it can absorb moisture, while it's also deodorizing. As you could guess, especially considering that they're conifers, they reproduce via cones. These cones are barrel-shaped, but never usually make it to the ground. Instead, they protect the seeds as the seeds grow for up to a year. Then the cones disintegrate, releasing the seeds. These seeds have a sort of wing, allowing them to be carried some distance by the wind. They are also rather unpleasant tasting, or so I've been told, which is thought to deter seed-eating animals. These are rather hardy trees. In the Middle East, they are commonly snowed on in the winter, then live through the summer droughts. In the Himalayas, they mostly survive on the summer monsoon, along with the occasional winter snowfall. And they are exceptionally hardy, as long as the temperature doesn't drop below about 15 below zero Fahrenheit, which is 25 below Celsius. And I know to many of you that seems really cold, but I've experienced temperatures that cold in both Illinois and Utah. I'm guessing you won't find cedars in Illinois, nor in the higher elevations of Utah. Of course, circling back to my original comments about there being no native true species in North America, that there are none in those two states becomes even more certain. Naturally occurring ones, especially those that may have been in areas encountered by the Israelites, would not have been subjected to temperatures anywhere close to that cold. The wood itself is closely associated with the oil that is commonly extracted from it. But before getting to that, I'm going to focus in on the specific cedar species that was likely the one in numbers, the Lebanon cedar. This species is like the others, growing up to 130 feet or 40 meters tall. It's not only tall, but its trunk is thick, up to 8 feet or 2.5 meters. And this makes for great lumber, certainly one of the reasons Solomon made wide use of it. And being such a large tree, it takes forever for it to reach maturity and begin producing seeds. In this case, forever is about 40 years. Up until that age, it grows vertically quickly into a true cone-shaped canopy, especially when surrounded by other such tall trees. After that, the growth slows immensely. There's a huge downside to such a long timetable. 
Populations can be quickly impacted by fire, pest, and overharvesting. Like the name indicates, it's native to Lebanon. This tree is the stuff of real legends, including the legendary Epic of Gilgamesh, one of the earliest great works of literature, dating to about the 22nd century BC. More on that in a minute. The Lebanon cedar is mentioned several times in the Old Testament. In Leviticus 14, Hebrew priests were ordered by Moses to use the bark of the cedar, and some translations, specifically the Lebanon cedar, in the treatment of leprosy. The prophet Isaiah, in the second chapter of the book bearing his name, used the Lebanon cedar as a metaphor for the pride of the world, and the tree was explicitly mentioned in Psalm 92 as a symbol of the righteous, where in this prayer for thanksgiving of vindication, it reads, The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. The significance of the tree to the religion, and even more specifically to Lebanon, has not diminished over the thousands of years that have passed since the building of Solomon's temple. It's the centerpiece of the modern Lebanese flag, and even on the logo of a regional airline. Some even refer to the country as the land of the cedars, and why not? These trees are majestic and timeless, truly timeless, as some Lebanese cedars are estimated to be up to 2,000 years old. Let that sink in. One that Paul may have laid eyes on could still be swaying in the warm summer mountain breeze. There's even one in Arkansas that's estimated to be over 100 years old, which of course is less remarkable. And considering it's in North America, it's obviously a transplant. There are cedars still standing in Britain that were estimated to have been planted there before 1664, so almost 400 years ago. The fact that these trees can live for so long makes their use in furniture and for building construction more obvious. In these uses is the resin and oil found in the grain that leads to the exceptional durability, resistant to the ravages of both the weather and boring insects. Unfortunately, the forests are only mere remnants of their former selves, with the decrease in size not only attributable to man, also to fires and pests, such as wood-boring worms. But the deforestation isn't a modern issue. As far back as the 2nd century AD Roman Emperor Hadrian, attempts have been made to save the forest. In his case, he had swaths of land declared to be imperial forest, so the property of the Republic. He even had the boundaries of the forest delineated with stones. More recently, both the countries of Lebanon and Turkey, where this specific variety is found, have set aside forest preserves. Turkey plants an estimated 50 million trees a year over an area that's about 116 square miles, or 300 square kilometers. I'm going to narrow my focus on the trees one more bit, to a specific forest in Lebanon known as the Cedars of God. What remains of this formerly extensive forest is located in the Kadisha Valley of Lebanon. This is in the central northern portion of the country. What makes this forest somewhat unique isn't that it's just one of the few remaining old-growth Lebanon cedar forests, 
but also that we have accounts of the trees almost as far back as history goes. These accounts exploded in the 16th and 17th centuries AD. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Before the Israelites arrived on the scene, and even before they originally departed for Egypt, there was the local folklore about the forest, a Sumerian myth. In the story, the Sumerian hero Gilgamesh and his friend Indaku travel to the legendary cedar forest to kill its guardian, then cut down the trees. At some point in their mythology, the forest had been protected by their deity Enlil. The story also tells that Gilgamesh used cedar wood to build his city. All of this was likely merely an explanation of what happened to the once great forest as a result of deforestation that occurred around 4,700 years ago. Early versions of the story were said to have taken place in Iran. Later, Babylonian accounts of the story put the cedar forest in Lebanon, likely the cedars of God. Timber produced from this forest was praised by the Phoenicians, Israelites, Egyptians, Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Romans, and even the Ottomans. Remembering back to all of the time I spent on the ancient Egyptians, you might recall that they used cedar in their shipbuilding. It's thought to have been cedar from this forest. As the crow flies, or maybe as the ship sails, the distance between the port of Alexandria in Egypt and the forest in Lebanon is over 400 miles, or nearly 700 kilometers. The Egyptians also used cedar resin, probably obtained from the forest, for the mummification process, and the cedar wood for some of their first hieroglyph-bearing rolls of papyrus. More on that resin in a minute. The Phoenicians used wood from the forest for their merchant fleets, this fleet made them the most powerful sea-trading nation in their world. It was from this forest that Solomon attained the cedar he needed for his construction in and around Jerusalem. Even today, to transport large quantities of large wood that far certainly indicates its superior qualities. Regionally, the wood was praised for thousands of years, even as the Ottomans used it for railway ties. As for those accounts in the 16th and 17th centuries, they all tended to record several similar things. First, large mature trees at that time were few, numbering between 16 and 28 trees. The area was only accessible in the summer, as winter snows prohibited passage to the mountain where they could be found. On the path to the forest, in the valley, was the Monastery of the Virgin Mary, Monks from the monastery would lead travelers the four-mile, six-kilometer path up the mountain. Some described the forest as being scattered trees, others as the trees being arranged in a large circle, about a mile in diameter. They were all described as being quite old, with no younger trees growing to replace the older ones, at least according to a few of the travelers. Other later travelers recorded young trees, of course, these may have sprung up in what was their recent past. One of these travelers even recorded the measurement of the largest tree at about 36 feet or 10 meters. He called it girt. I'm assuming what he meant was circumference, which would make the diameter just over 11 feet or three and a half meters. 
This same writer had clouds roll in while surveying the forest, and he and his monk guide got lost on the way down, walking around for seven hours before the sun set. They were forced to spend the night in the woods. It's funny how some aspects of a hike in the woods have survived for about 500 years. There are also a few trivial bits. In the 16th century, the Archbishop of Damascus was claiming that the surviving trees had been planted by Solomon himself, who lived about 2,400 years earlier, which is slightly greater than our now understood 2,000-year cedar lifespan. Also, in 1876, Queen Victoria paid to have a 250-acre section surrounded by a high stone wall. This was in order to protect saplings from grazing goats. Despite this, during World War I, British troops used the cedar for the railroad. Today, several of the trees in the forest remain, with four of them reaching a height of at least 115 feet, 35 meters. Of these, the trunks range in diameter from 12 feet to nearly 15, which is between 3.5 and 4.5 meters. The country of Lebanon has put several protective measures in place, including limiting visitors to those led by an authorized guide, along with the previously covered reforestation efforts. But trees are slow growers, and the benefits of these efforts will likely only be seen by future generations. You have to start someplace. And that's it for the trees. But there's something else that is worthy of covering and that's the oil produced by these conifers. Cedar oil, sometimes called cedar wood oil, is produced from the tree's needles, occasionally also from the wood itself. It has a weak antibacterial effect, along with serving as a pest repellent. It's possible that the ancient Israelites, along with other contemporary cultures, recognized this antibacterial effect. Recall that in Leviticus 14, the priest would cleanse a leprous house with a combination of cedarwood, hyssop, water, crimson yarn, along with the blood of a sacrificed bird. Unfortunately, today most of what is marketed commercially as cedar oil is not from a cedar tree, but from a juniper. Given the limited number of some true cedars, maybe that's a good thing. The oil that the Israelites, Sumerians, and Egyptians would be familiar with would have been sourced from true cedars, likely from Lebanon and other high spots in the Middle East. The ancient Egyptians used the oil from the cedar trees in the embalming process. It served to keep insects away from the mummified body. This was less expensive than removing internal organs to be preserved separately in canopic jars. They would inject cedar oil into body cavities instead of removing any organs. There's more to it, but I'd like to keep my iTunes clean rating. Just know that the end result was the same, a well-preserved mummy. The Sumerians used it as a base for paint. To make blue, they would grind cobalt compounds and combine it with the fragrant oil. Green was made by combining the oil with copper. Yellow from lead antimonate black from charcoal, and white from gypsum. Even in our modern society, it still has limited use besides the fragrance. It's sometimes used to clarify emeralds, 
It's also approved for use by the U.S. FDA as a food preservative. And that's it for this essential oil. Which gets me to the last topic for this episode, hyssop. This shrub, closely related to mint, grows to about 2 feet or 60 centimeters tall. The stem is woody and the leaves are dark green, about an inch long. It's drought resistant, which bodes well in the region, especially considering all of the droughts recorded in the Old Testament. Even though it's related to mint, it tastes somewhat different. The leaves are used as an aromatic condiment. They have a very intense minty aroma, but a lightly bitter taste due to tannins. It's due to this intensity that it's used only moderately in cooking, especially in Middle Eastern cuisine. The plant is commonly used by beekeepers to make a rich and aromatic honey. The Egyptians used the plant for religious purification. It's native to Southern Europe and the Middle East, of course. Historically, it's been thought of as an antiseptic, cough reliever, expectorant. For these reasons, it's been used in traditional herbal medicine. In this traditional regard, in addition to all these other uses, it was thought to increase circulation and stimulate the digestive system. The leaves and stalks are used to produce an essential oil that contains the chemicals thujone and phenol. It's these two chemicals that give it antiseptic properties, but only topically. Ingesting it can cause seizures, especially in children. The shrub makes an appearance in both the Old and New Testaments. In Psalm 51, the writer opines, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. It was burned with the sacrifice of the red heifer. At Passover, it was used to sprinkle blood of the sacrificial lamb on the doorpost. And finally, when Jesus was being crucified, in John 19, we can read, After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the wine on a branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, It is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. End quote. But what we think of as hyssop may be different from what was mentioned in the Bible. 1 Kings 4 reads that hyssop was a wall plant, likely meaning it grew up walls, similar to ivy. What we know as hyssop does not grow like this. So if what was written wasn't about the shrub, what was it? Well, all we have are theories. Theories that include moss or a fern. Though those would not have a branch strong enough to support a sponge. So if it wasn't that, other theories hold that it could have been Syrian oregano, thyme, rosemary, marjoram, or any number of other herbs native to the region. There's also the caper plant that grows in the rocky soil in that area. None of these, though, offer anything conclusive. And that's a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue working through numbers. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. 
As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.